to stand and worship with us? My foes are many, they rise against me, but I will hold my ground. I will not fear the war, I will not fear the storm, my help is on the way, my help is on the way.
Thanks so much for worshiping with us. We want to welcome you to New Spring Church. We're so glad that you're here. If you're a first-time guest, you received a Talk to Us card when you walked in. You can fill out the information if you feel comfortable there and take it to guest services, and we have a free gift for you. Let's continue in worshiping.
If you're a veteran or active duty military personnel, please stand and be recognized this weekend. The rest of us stand and join us with you. 
service as we sing. Apart, your arms hold me together. 
When everything falls apart, you're the only hope for this heart. When everything falls apart and my strength is gone, I find you mighty and strong. You keep holding on, you keep holding on. So I'll stand with the untied heart of that is your creation. We thank you so much for the many blessings that you've given us, Lord, in our lives, Lord, for this great country, this great state, and this awesome church, Lord. We just thank you so much for it, Lord. We pray right now, lift up those in need and those that are hurting right now, Lord. We just ask that you wrap your arms around the city of Moragloma, Lord, that you be with those that just have lost everything, Lord, that you just around them, Lord, and let them know that you are there, carrying them each step of the way. We thank you so much, Lord, for what you've given us. We pray this in your awesome and precious name, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to New Spring. So glad that you're here with us this weekend. Um, Wendy and I have been here for the last uh, little over three years when we received the call to come to Wichita and be a part of New Spring. But previous to those three years, we spent six years in Oklahoma City. Uh, and so our hearts, are very, um, our hearts are very tied to many individuals right now who are going through some significant challenges there in the Oklahoma City area more especially. And I know that you probably have lots of connections with folks there. It's not too far away. Um, and I know that you probably... Uh, like us, have had your heart stirred for the need there. And so um, before we take the offering this morning, I want to show you a video. My, my dad, before, before he headed out of town, um, he filmed a video based off the information that we had at that time. We're going to play that video, and then I'm going to come up and give you a little bit of an update on where things stand, uh, and then we'll take the morning offering. Go ahead and watch this video. Although I'm not able to be with you this week, I want to take just a moment to talk with you about what happened in Oklahoma. As I record this, it's Tuesday morning, and the full extent of everything that's happened in Moore and the surrounding area is still not known. I picked up a copy of USA Today, and the headline just broke my heart, 40 minutes of terror. Obviously, we can't undo the damage that's done, but it does raise the question, what can we do as a family of faith to help our friends in Oklahoma? One of the things that's happened here at New Spring this last year that I think is really special and significant is we've had over a hundred of our people trained in disaster relief. And at this moment, they stand ready to be called on. But there's something that all of us can do, and that is we can give to meet the needs of those who are hurting. You can do it if you wish today in the offering by just taking an envelope from the chair in front of you and write the word tornado or disaster relief anything along those lines, and we'll get the funds channeled toward those who can help the people the most down there. Also, if you give electronically, there'll be a designation that says something like disaster relief, and you can add that to your gift. So I just wanna make an appeal to you today because I know you love and care for those who are hurting, and because I know you wanna do something to help them. So obviously, all of us can pray. 
but we can also give. So take a moment to think about that today. And may God bless you, and I pray that God gives us an extraordinary and meaningful weekend here at New Spring. Well, um, first of all, can we just celebrate for a moment the fact that we actually do now have, this is a new thing, by the way, we do have 100 people at New Spring Church trained and ready to go in case of need in a disaster. Can we celebrate with them that we're thankful that they're doing that? In my opinion, New Spring just got a little bit cooler, okay, because of that. That's pretty cool. Um, right now, though, um, we've heard, we, you know, we've, we've sent a, kind of a survey team in to go find out what we can do. And here's what we've learned from the officials in Oklahoma. At this point in time, they're not yet needing feet on the ground there. Um, they do have a lot of people there already helping, and they feel like they've reached the max of what they need. But they do need funds um, to help them continue doing the recovery effort. So uh, as Dad said in the video, if that's something that's on your heart, you can designate that on your envelope. You can just write Oklahoma or tornado or disaster relief or whatever, and we'll make sure that however much you designate gets there. Um, and know you'll be a blessing to those who are hurting as a result of that. Uh, those who are prepared to take the offer, you can go ahead and come forward and check out what's going on at New Spring. In just a minute, we'll be hearing a message from God's Word. Please silence your cell phones or any other electronic devices. And if you have a baby or child in the room that might cause a disturbance, or if you need to have a conversation with someone, please go to the overflow area in the foyer so that others in the auditorium can concentrate on the message. Starting Point is a 10-week conversational environment where you can explore faith and experience community. If you'd like to learn more about it, attend a Starting Point orientation session coming up on June 1st or 2nd. You'll have the chance to check out materials and meet leaders with no obligation. Learn more and sign up at newspring.org slash starting point. Now check out this video of how you can help this summer with the Kids World 90 Day Challenge. Hello, New Spring. Boy, have we got a deal for you. Kids World is proud to introduce the 90 Day Challenge. That's right, for a limited time, you have the awesome opportunity to volunteer in Kids World and only commit to serve for 90 days. With your 90-day commitment, you'll get plenty of chances to make a kid's day brighter just by greeting them at the door with a smile, or helping them at check-in, or even handing them a shoe bag. Hey, you can also get plenty of high fives, or even give a few away, at little or no cost to you. Yeah, you can also save on gym membership during this free 90-day challenge. Use this opportunity to do some kid curls, over the safety mats, of course or use this time to participate in the Runaway Kid Relays. Possibilities are endless here at Kids World. Whether it's interacting with puppets or making a stinky kid smell fresh again, we've got something that's right up your alley or hallway. Speaking of which, to sign up, just follow the red line to volunteer training right after today's service. We'll get you signed up in a jiffy and you'll feel nifty. I mean, nifty. Now, you'll feel good about it. Offer not valid at any other church, only a new spring in Kids World. I believe God speaks to us. Certainly he speaks to us through his word, the Bible, and he speaks to us through the beauty of nature. And we're aware of his presence in our lives every day. But I'm talking about something else. I believe there are moments in our lives when everything hangs in the balance. Our destiny's at stake. And God comes along, and He whispers something into our life that changes everything. Now, I'm not talking about God speaking to us audibly, but if you've ever had a moment like this, you know that it's even more powerful than if God were to speak out loud to you. It's God's presence, and it's God's voice, and it changes everything. I've had four such moments in my life, and they transformed my destiny. But more than that, it changed the story of New Spring Church. On June 1st and 2nd, we're going to start a series called Divine Whispers, and I want to share my story with you of God's encounters with me. And beyond that, we're going to learn how to know if God is speaking to you, because maybe you're going to have a moment in your life where everything is going to hang in the balance, and you may even be about to make the wrong step, but God will come along, and He'll speak truth into your life, and you'll never be the same. You'll have Divine Whisper experience in your own life. Divine Whispers starts June 1st and 2nd. It's going to change us. We're not going to be the same when it's over.
Good morning again. If you've known me for any length of time, you know I don't normally sound this way. I'm uh, under the weather and heavily medicated, so this may be interesting. I want to talk to you. This is the last week in a series called Waiting Room. The topic of our series is what to do when God makes you wait. Last week we talked about the fact that um, good or important things typically require some level of waiting. As a matter of fact, uh, the better something is, the more important it is, it seems like sometimes the more waiting that you do. So we kind of set up the idea last week that if God wants the best for us, he may be the person that sometimes we wait on the longest. Um, and so the question that we've been asking ourselves is how do we respond uh, when we're in God's waiting room? How do we respond when God makes us wait? And last week we talked about strategic waiting. <clears throat> when we talked about Abraham and Sarah, and the fact that God had made a promise to them and said they were going to be the parents of a great nation, and yet they did not yet have one child, and how impossible biologically it seemed that they would ever be able to actually experience what God had promised them. And yet what we learned last week is that God is going to do what God is going to do, and that we can't put God in a box. God can do anything that he wants to do. We talked last week about it's not us coming to God and saying, what can you do for me? But it is God asking us, what can't I do for you? And we talked about the fact that we don't have the resources to do God's job for him. Only God can create a genuine future for us. So uh, that's the rundown of last week. This week is a little different <clears throat> because we're kind of covering a little bit different territory. Last week we were talking about what do you do when you feel like God has a future in mind for you or there's a plan that you feel like God has for you and you, as of yet you're not experiencing it. It's not happening. It's not a reality yet. How do you wait for that? And that's what we talked about last week. This week is a little different because I want to talk to you about how do you survive when you are in pain as you wait? How do you survive if you're hurting while you wait? And I think all of us know the difference, right? I mean, there's a difference between waiting in your doctor's office in the waiting room for a, a checkup appointment and waiting in the emergency room with a broken bone waiting to be seen, right? Because the, the, the difference is that you're in acute pain as you wait, and it feels different. As a matter of fact, um, in, if you're in the emergency room, waiting room, there's almost a tension in the air, isn't there? It's almost like there's a, it's, it, sometimes you can almost, it feels like you could cut the tension with a knife just because everybody's hurting, you know? And so, uh, and as, actually, as a matter of fact, as I was getting ready for this message, I remember at a time that I was in the emergency room, I, um, right after we were married, I guess I was 21 or 22, and I was in an, uh, an occupational training school, and at night, I was working my way through school by um, working in the tire and lube bay at Walmart, at the local Walmart. If you can imagine that, that's what I did, and I actually, I enjoyed it. But um, I, we had pits there. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you actually go down, the technician goes into a pit, and the car drives in over them, and they do the oil change, and then the car drives out. Well, there's these steel grates, okay, that are there to keep the car from driving down on top of you. They're important, you know. And um, so when you change the oil, what happens, the car drives over you, you, make, you take this 40-pound steel grate and you move it over, you change the oil, then you move the steel grate back, you just take it, and it's heavy. You take it and you grab it and you just sling it forward and it falls back down where it's supposed to be and they drive out. Well, one night I was really tired. I'd had a long day at school and I wasn't paying attention. And so I, I was done changing the oil and I had my hand on the grate in front of me and I grabbed the grate in behind me, the 40 pounds of steel, and slung it and it smashed my knuckles on this hand, right? So I'm, you know, mangled and messed up and not feeling very good, and they take me to the emergency room, right? And I go to something that they call triage. Have you ever been to, you go to the emergency room, they take you to a triage room. Now triage, let me just inform you in case you've never been in this scenario, triage is a little like going to the school nurse, right? They're not gonna do anything to help you there yet, they're just gonna find out how legitimate your problem is and whether to send you back to class, right? Um, so you, you go there and they ask you a bunch of questions about what's going on, they take a look at you. You know, and this, this nice nurse asked me, she said, what's your pain level on a scale of one to 10, right? Now time out, right? I'm a man, right? So you ought to know better than to ask me a question like that, right? If I, I can't tell you the true answer to that or I wouldn't be a real man, right? I mean, I'm thinking it's like 14, you know, at the time. But in order to send, to, to, to keep some sort of consistency with my sense of hopefully having a manly nature, I said, it's about a two, you know? 
I'm, I'm in intense pain there, and I'm giving her a two on a scale of one to ten, you know? And I think I've really done myself a favor because I've really come off looking like a he-man, right? And they send me back to the waiting room. Now I'm waiting to actually go see the actual doctor, but I notice that everybody there gets in before me. I mean, there are people who are coming in after me with a runny nose, right? And they're still getting back to see the doctor before I am, right? And I'm over here in a mangled mess, not feeling very good about things. I go to the front desk, and I ask the lady, I'm like, well, how is it that everybody else is getting in there before I am? And she said, well, we treat people according to the level of their injury. And when she said the word level, I realized what I had done. I was sitting with the rest of the twos, right? And the, the runny nose sevens were getting in before me, right? <clears throat> and I, I remember thinking, I was like, man, can I just change my number? Can you get my paperwork out? I want to change my number, right? And I don't know if you've ever been in this, in, in your situation in your life. I don't know if you've ever been in a place in your life where you're like, God, can I change my number now? <laughs> it's, it's getting worse. It's hurting worse. I'm really going through a lot of pain here, and I need you to do something. Can I change my number? Can you understand how bad this hurts? I really need you to do something like now, right? And what we're talking about this week is someone who experienced that in the Bible. If you're, if you're familiar with your Bible, you probably know kind of where I'm going with this. We're going to talk about the story of a man named Job. And as a matter of fact, even if you're not familiar with your Bible, even if you're someone that this, you know, the church thing is kind of new to you, you've probably heard at some point of Job because he's become part of our vernacular. We talk about someone who's gone th through repetitive pain. We say, well, he's suffering like Job or she's suffering like Job or they're going through things that aren't fair like Job. And we use that term. But I want to open the story of Job up for you today. I want to help you explore what happened in the Bible. And I want to pick out a few things as wonderful as Job did. Job did a fantastic job of going through a difficult time, but he still made some mistakes that really were costly to him in the process. And I wanna just kind of open up this story and go through a few things that we can learn about how to survive when we're waiting in the midst of pain. First off though, I wanna take you to the Bible and I wanna to talk to you about how God viewed Job. In Job 1.1, this is God speaking, he says, there was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless. Now think about the fact that God is saying Job was blameless. A man of complete integrity, and he feared God and stayed away from evil. So God is saying he was an incredible person as far as being a God follower. And then in verse 2, he talks about how rich he was. He says he had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Now, don't read past that too fast. In, in a culture where livestock was what made you wealthy, he was obscenely wealthy. He had, he had more than he knew what to do with. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. The Bible says he just had enormous wealth. And uh, so I think in order to understand Job, first you have to understand that he was a person who lived his life in the middle of huge blessing. And, and interestingly enough, he used his blessing. He used what God had given him to serve God. And maybe you're in that place position today. Maybe you're somebody who's been really blessed by God, and you, you're somebody who's intentionally turned that blessing around, and you're trying to serve God with it. If, if that is where you are, maybe you could relate to Job. But then there's a backstory that you have to understand. If you ever want to understand the book of Job, you have to understand this backstory. The Bible tells us something that Job would never know, Job's friends would never know. This is something that happened prior to the pain that Job went through. And what happened is God and Satan had, a, had, had kind of like a meeting. Now, the Bible tells us that apparently there's a time when the angels come to God and give reports over their jurisdictions or give reports over what God has assigned them to do. And what we can infer from Job is that also Satan has access to come and talk to God at the same time. Now, what is Satan doing? Well, the Bible says that when Satan comes and talks to God, his goal, his objective is to accuse you and me to God, to, to talk to God about what we're doing wrong to kind of find the faults in us and tell God about everything that's messed up with us, right? In fact, the Bible calls Satan Diabolos, the one who throws accusations. That's just his gig, right? So the Bible says Satan came to God. He wanted to accuse um, people on earth to God, and God didn't want to talk about those people. He wanted to talk about Job. In Job 1, verse 8, it says the Lord asked Satan, and this is God asking Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity, and he fears God and stays away from evil. How cool is that? God is saying, hey, Satan, man, you, you want to talk about mess-ups? Let's talk about this guy because he's doing pretty good. I would love for God to be able to use me as an example of the fact that Satan is wrong. That would be cool, right? Then Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. I would love for God to do that. How you have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. 
but reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. We're talking about today about waiting and being in pain. And some of you know exactly what that's like. Some of you have had so much trauma in your life that even as you sit in this room and you listen to me speak, it's hard to go back and think about the traumatic events that have, that have taken place in your life. And you remember those moments when you got the phone call um, about a loved one who had passed or was sick, or you got the pink slip and you had to leave the job that you thought you'd always be at, or, or, or you got the divorce filing or the diagnosis. And you remember that odd sense that there was a part of you that was numb and that there was a part of you that couldn't hurt any worse. And that feeling that it's just, I'm never gonna be okay. And this is where, exactly where Job is getting ready to go in Job 1. It says, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And then look at this, it says, while he was still speaking. You're gonna notice this in this account that we read. It's gonna keep saying, while he was still speaking, this person came and said this. While he was still speaking, this person came and said this. Maybe you've lived this in your life. That when you go through a traumatic situation, it's like beam, bam, boom, over and over again, you get hit. There's no break, there's no pause. It's just one thing after the other. You don't have, a pro, uh, uh, you don't have time to process. You don't have time to think it through. It just keeps happening one after the other. And this is what happened with Job. Because while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And then while he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And this is the worst one. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and your daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. And suddenly a powerful wind, and we think this refers to a tornado, swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Time out. Think about everything Job lost that fast. His job, his livelihood, his kids, everything. It's all gone. But the Bible says, and this is what's so huge, the Bible said that Job responded by worshiping the Lord. In Job 1, verse 20, the Bible says, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. And then he shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had. The Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Man, I hope someday, if I go through something like what Job went through, I hope I can have the intestinal fortitude to stand up to God and say, you know what? I praise you even when I'm going through a challenge, even when I'm going through difficult times. You're still God and you're on the throne and I praise you. That's what Job did. And here's the thing. If Satan had any integrity at all, if he had an ounce of personal integrity, right, he would have gone back to God and said, you're right and I was wrong. You, I, I said that if you take everything he has away, he's going to curse you. And he did it. He's worshiping you, so I was wrong. But Satan doesn't play that. He had something else up his sleeve. In Job 2, the Bible says, Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life. Oh my gosh, think about this. Satan was saying, turns out, I guess he doesn't care about any of his stuff. All he cares about is himself. So he says, reach out and take away his health, and then he will surely curse you to your face. God said, all right, do with him as you please, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. And Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. The Bible says he was struck with terrible boils. And somebody asked me one time, and said, how bad do you think the boils were that Job had? And I said, well, here's the deal. God said he could do anything he wanted to him just so long as he didn't kill him. So you think about however bad Satan can make you hurt without killing you, that's what Job was going through. He, gave him, he, he caused Job's skin to thicken, and then he had these terrible boils. They smelled rotten. He, the, the Bible tells us later in Job that he became the punchline of local jokes. He, he, he lived on the rubbish heap, more or less, of, of, of his city. Nobody wanted to be around him. And, and think about what it had to be like for him to live life on the ash pile after having been the richest person in his city. Sorry, guys. But if you think about it, though, and, 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 and as well, I, I want to just mention, apparently his marriage wasn't doing the best either. 
his wife had obviously given up on him even being able to keep living. She said, you might as well just curse God and let it be over with. And in the midst of this, Job is in the waiting room. He's in the emergency room. It doesn't get much worse than this. He's hurting. He's lost. He's physically hurting. Some of you know what this is like. Some of, the, some of you, I'm totally online with you right now because you have gone through loss of people that matter to you or loss of things that matter to you. You've experienced personal pain and you know what it's like to live on the ash pile. You know what it's like to be in, the, in that emergency room of life where everything hurts and you're just waiting for some intervention. But in the middle of this, Job made a few mistakes and I wanna talk to you about what they were, things that you can avoid when you're in the emergency room of life. If you're taking notes, here's the first one. The first mistake that Job made is he let anxiety shape his view of God. He let anxiety shape his view of God. If we go to Job 3, verse 25, it's a very important verse. It's easy to skip over, but it's a very important verse. Job says this, what I always feared has happened to me. What I dreaded has come true. Now think about this. He said, what I always feared. That means back when he had lots of good stuff, Back when everything was going well, he was scared he was gonna lose it. He really already was thinking in his heart, this is too good to be true. I have too much blessing. At some point, I'm gonna lose all this. At some point, everything is just gonna fold on me and I'm gonna lose everything that I have. And he truly lived life with an anxious sense of a cloud hanging overhead. At some point, I'm gonna lose God's blessing in my life. And as a result, he, he became a little bit of a control freak. He tried to do things to make sure that he wouldn't lose God's blessing in his life. And in Job 1.4, we see an example of this. The Bible says Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular practice. Now think about this. Job is so worried, right, that something has happened wrong with his kids that he not only sacrifices for what his kids may or may not have done, he makes a sacrifice for each of his kids for what they may or may not have done. Do you see the sense that he's really just trying to hedge all his bets to make sure that he does not lose what God has given him because there's a sense of anxiety that I will lose. This is too good to be true. God's blessing in my life is too good to be true. This is probably the most important thing I'm gonna say all morning. And if you're taking notes, this wouldn't be a bad thing to write down. Satan's agenda, if you want to know what Satan's agenda was in this case, Satan's agenda was to convince God that Job only served him because God gave him such good stuff. And his job was to convince Job that God only gave him such good stuff because he served God. I'll say that again. God wanted, Satan, Satan wanted God to believe that Job only served him because God had given him such great stuff. And God wanted, and Satan, excuse me, Satan wanted Job to believe that the only reason he was getting all these blessings was because he was serving God. Can I tell you what's wrong with that? It takes love out of the equation. There's no room for love in a situation like that. That's just a transaction. If I do this, you do this, right? There's no room for love in that. See, the thing about it is, what true love is about, if you go to Romans 5.8, and I don't have the scripture on the screen, but if you go to Romans 5.8, the Bible says that God demonstrated true love by choosing to die for us while we were still sinners. So yes, it is true there is a cause and effect nature in the universe. And to a certain extent, what we plant, that is what we reap. You don't plant an apple seed and get an orange tree. There are a lot of things in life where what we do affects the outcome. But there are also situations in life where we will experience God's blessing even when we're failing. That's love. That's what God does. That's his thing. And there will also be moments in life where we do not sense God's blessing directly. But the reason we serve him in the middle of the trial or the difficulty that we're going through is because of love. Satan just doesn't understand love. It's not in his vocabulary. And so Satan's job was to convince Job, it's not a love thing. You, you gotta make sure you do all the right things. Cross all your T's, dot all your I's, because if you don't do that, God's not gonna bless you anymore. And, and Satan was trying to convince God, Job only serves you because you're so good to him. Take away his stuff, and I guarantee you, he'll drop off your radar screen. You think about what Satan tried to get God to do. He said, take away his stuff, and he'll curse you. That didn't work. Take away his kids, and he'll curse you. That didn't work. Okay, take away his health. Do you see the one-dimensional idea that Satan, and Satan thinks that we think the way he does, but you see the one-dimensional idea he has of relationships. It's all about the transaction. But how do we approach God? I, I, wanna, I wanna give you a verse. This, is, this verse is, is easy to, it's another verse that's easy to read over, but it's got such profound truth in it. In Hebrews 11, verse six, it says this, and it is impossible to please God without faith. 
Now look at this. Anyone who wants to come to him, anyone who wants to come to God, must believe two things. What? First, that God exists. That's fair. If you want God to do something for you, first you've got to believe that he exists. That's fair. But look at this. And that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. To come to God, you have to believe, number one, that he exists. And second, that he loves you enough that he will reward you. See, some of us, we come to God, but we're, we're not so much sure that God is a rewarder. It feels more like a transaction. So we're trying to do all the right things to try to keep from losing what God has given us. And God is saying, wait a minute, if you want to come to me, you've got to believe, first of all, that I am. And second of all, you've got to believe something about my character. You've got to believe that I'm a God who wants to reward you, that I love you. So that was the first thing. Job was struggling with anxiety. Here's the second thing, and I told you I was going to lay this out on the line. I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. The second thing is Job listened to people who didn't know what they were talking about. Right? The whole book of Job, as a matter of fact, is really easy to kind of divide into sections. First couple chapters is God talking about how Job lost his, his, um, his stuff and his health. Middle section of the book is about Job's three friends coming to talk to him. Right? Now, friends in air quotes, right? These guys were not helpful, right? Um, their names were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, um, Larry, Moe, and Curly. They, they, came, they came to help. Have you ever had a friend try to help you and it didn't really help? That's what was going on with these guys. Let me tell you what. Truly, truly, I want you to hear me out. As somebody who does, my, the majority of the work that I do here at New Spring is marriage coaching. I just want to tell you, and I want you to hear this from my heart. There will never be any shortage of armchair quarterbacks in your life to tell you about what it is that you're going through, why you're going through it, and what you should do to get out of it, okay? The world is full of armchair quarterbacks. The world is not full of people who will get on the team with you and fight the battle that you're facing, right? But Job had three of these armchair quarterbacks in his life. They came in to kind of help him unpack what was going on. And these were bad counselors. And at some point in your life, you're going to get some bad counsel, whether it maybe comes from a friend or a relative or whatever source, you can get some bad counsel. And I want you to be able to, to know it when you hear it. So I'm going to give you two keys to bad counsel. This will tell you um, how to filter what you hear and determine whether it's worth listening to or it needs to be rejected. Here's the first red flag of bad counseling. The first one is these guys put God in a box. They basically had a theory of God, and as long as God was working within their theory, that's what they're going to put forward to Job. Remember last week we talked about the fact that we don't have the resources to do God's job, and one of the things about that is we can tend to put God in a box and say, God, this is how the world works. Sometimes we can, though, even get to the point where we say, God, this is how you work. I've read the Bible, and I know how you work, so don't tell me you work any other way than what I have read. Don't tell me that you do anything different than my, and this is what's so huge. God does work according to his revealed word. He does not always work according to my interpretation of his word. Sometimes he does his own thing, right? And so these guys really had this sense that, well, I know how God works, and so I'm going to tell Job about it. And and we have a little bit here I'll share with you. In Job um, chapter 4, one of his friends said, stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Basically, he's saying, um, you know, this is your fault. You did something wrong. In Job 8, the Bible, one of his friends says, does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. Can you imagine talking to a father who's just had to bury his kids and telling him that their, his kids must have done something wrong and that's why they died? I can't imagine. In Job 11, um, verse 6, his friend says, If only God would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom is not a simple matter. Listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. See, they thought they understood God. Their idea was, well, if something bad happens to you, you must have done something wrong. That's the way God works. If you, if you did something wrong, God punishes you, so straighten up, Job. Get with the program, buddy. You must have done something terrible. Obviously, we didn't see you do anything bad, but you must have done something pretty bad. So get back on the straight and narrow, and you're going to get healed. Let me ask you a question. Based off of what you know from this story, number one, did Job do anything to deserve this? No, all right, and since this is between God and Satan and God is trying to prove through Job that his love does exist, if Job were to try to somehow get his life straight, which it already pretty much was straight, but if he was to somehow get his life straight, would that make his pain go away? No, right, but he's got friends that think God works this way and so they're giving him counsel, they put God in a box and listen to me, if you ever have somebody who puts God in a box and they're giving you counsel, it is time to say thank you, but I, I don't need that right now. Because I serve a God big enough to work in whatever way is necessary to bring me out of this. I serve a God that is big enough to restore me no matter what your view of God is. No matter how much you can put God in a box, I believe God is big enough to restore me. And he can do anything however he wants to do it. Right? Here's the second thing. And that is, and this is so huge. If you, yeah, anyway, they, they thought they understood everything he was going through. 
Have you ever been through a time when you were going through such deep pain and you had a friend and they meant well, but they said, I know what you're going through. Oh, I understand. And there's a part of you on the inside, maybe you don't verbalize it, but there's a part of you on the inside that says, no, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't feel what I feel. Only I feel what I feel. I, only I know exactly what it is that I'm going through. And there is that moment when you have to tell a friend, look, I really appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're trying to see what I'm going through, but right now I need you to encourage me. I need you to be with me. I need you to stand with me in the fight. I don't need to be analyzed. There are those moments where we have to share that. Okay, here's the third thing. Man, I'm running out of time. The third thing is this. Job tried to bring God down to his level. And this is probably the worst mistake he made. And what we're going to read is a progression. I want to start in Job 9. This is God, or excuse me, this is Job speaking about God. He says, so who am I that I should try to answer God or even reason with him? Even if I were right, I would have no defense. I could only plead for mercy. And even if I summoned him, he's saying, even if I subpoenaed God to the courtroom of my life, and he responded, I'm not sure he would listen to me. And then in Job 9, he says, God is not a mortal like me, as if he was saying, I wish God was human like me. I can't argue with him or take him to trial. If only there was a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Uh, in Job 13, 3, he says, as for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. Notice at first he said, I can't argue my case with God. Now I want to argue my case with God. In Job 13, 15, he says, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I am going to argue my case with him. Now this is huge. Job is saying, if, if only God were human like me. If God could be human like me for a minute, we could talk. We could have a conversation. I could argue my case. I could say, God, look at all the good things I've done. Why am I going through this? God could tell me why I'm going through this. God could help me understand when it's going to be over. If only he was a human being, we could converse. We could discuss. We could work through this, right? And at a point, Job demands that God show up and defend himself. And so God says, all right, I'll do that. In Job 38, God, says, God comes to Job and he says, hey, excuse Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? And what supports its foundation? Who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? I just gave you a part of that chapter. Throughout that whole chapter, God keeps talking about all the things that he has done because he is God. And says, Job, were you there for that? Do you understand how that works? And for the only time in the whole scripture... God actually spoke to a human being and told Job, if you think you can do it better than me, I'll gladly give you the keys. See, he's coming to Job and giving him his business card and saying, you, you may want to recall that I am God, right? And what is he saying? He's saying, Job, you don't need me to be a human like you. You need me to be God like me. Because a human could not restore you. See, this is what's so huge. We go through pain and we go through difficulty and we think, God, I'm going through it. And if you were just here with me in a human form and I could talk to you and we could discuss it. But see, if God were human, he could not restore us. He wouldn't have the ability to. It takes a God. It takes someone with the power of God, somebody who is a creator, somebody who is able to put together the universe in which we live. It takes somebody that strong, that capable, that powerful to restore you when you go through loss. And Job was pretty quick to say, God, you're right, you're God, I'm not. I didn't know what I was talking about. And after a period of time, God restored Job. As a matter of fact, God even came and talked to Job's three friends, Larry, Moe, and Curly, you know. And he came and he said to them, you guys had it wrong, as a matter of fact. And he said, you, you're in trouble. <laughs> you need Job to pray for you, right? Uh, and, and so the Bible says that Job prayed for his friends and the Lord restored his fortunes. Isn't that a beautiful phrase, the Lord restored? The Lord restored. And the Bible says, in fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers, sisters, and I love this, and his former friends, right? These are the friends that jumped off the, the wagon when he got the sores, right? They came back. Um, they came and feasted with him in his home. And they consoled him and comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. And it says, the Lord blessed Job in his second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 teams of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And this is important. Check this out. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. Now I want you to get this because if you don't get this, you could miss a very important part. If you read those, if you heard me talk about how many animals he had, how much livestock he had in the beginning, and you just heard me talk about how much God restored, you'll notice all the numbers are doubled. He gave him double the amount of sheep, double the amount of camels, double the teams of oxen. 
but only the same number of kids. Same number of sons, same number of daughters. Now, why would that be? Because he never lost his sons and daughters in the first place. When they died on this earth, they went to be with God in heaven. And when Job goes to heaven, he's, he's going to be there with those kids. He never lost them. So here's the huge thing, and I want you to get this. For each of us, there will be some loss that we experience on this earth that will not be restored until we're in heaven. See, even Job, as much as God is using Job for the poster child of loss and restoration, even with Job, God was saying, some of your restoration you won't even experience until you get to heaven. And you're in this room, and a lot of you have experienced deep loss, and I want to tell you, there are going to be things in your life that you will not fully recover from here, but when you get to heaven, you are going to be just incredibly blown away by the fact that God is a restorer. That is his character. That is what he does. I'm in overtime, but I want to read something to you. Um, one of my dearest friends, uh, he's just, I, I just love him and his wife. His name is Donnie Van Curen, and he was my Sunday school teacher nine or ten years ago. Um, and then we've just formed a deep friendship for a long time. And Donnie, um, Donnie's wife came down with what they thought was the flu about two and a half years ago. And, um, but she wasn't getting better. Her fever kept rising, and, and she wasn't doing well at all. And so they took her to the hospital, and they found out that she was dying, as a matter of fact. She had a, a, an infection in her lungs that was literally killing her. And so they ended up putting her on a ventilator and um, sedating her, and she was unconscious for, I believe, if I remember, 17 days. And Donnie was in the emergency room of life. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, these are, these are young people. They're in their 30s, and here they are, you know, two young kids, and he doesn't know whether his wife is going to be there with him the next day or not. And for 17 nights, Donnie laid on the floor of the ICU next to his wife's bed, just praying that God would restore her, that God would bring her back to him. And I asked Donnie, I said, Donnie, I'm speaking this weekend. Do you mind if I just read a couple posts from your caring bridge from a couple years ago? And he said, man, do it. So I want to read these to you. February 8th, 2011, in the middle of the ventilator days, he said, yesterday, Donnie said, yesterday was not an easy day for me. Heather struggled most of the afternoon with a high fever and heart rate, and the meds used to sedate her and keep her comfortable do not seem to be working at the level they did earlier in the week. I just can't explain how hard it is to watch her suffer with no way of helping. I find myself getting frustrated and angry. I hurt for her and for our family. It's sometimes hard to be honest with your feelings, but I want others to know and understand the extent of this journey, if only to help them someday. He talks a little bit about her condition, and then he says, as I prayed today, I felt God's presence, and I know he is near. I don't understand why we're going through this and would gladly pass on it if given the option, but I do know that my God is a good God, and he is in control, regardless of my emotions or fears. This life is but a glimpse of our eternal destination, and again, this morning, I press on. I want to read you his post from five days later. Doctors in the x-rays did not give us much hope this morning that Heather would be able to be taken off the ventilator, but my God is an awesome God. I received a call from the hospital around 2 p.m. saying that Heather had been taken off the ventilator and was asking for me. With tears of joy, I was reunited with my bride. We both shed tears as we sat alone in her room. This is a day I will never forget. I sat in her arms with tears in my eyes as if embracing a friend that had been gone for a very long time. I love her so much and missed her wonderful smile. She has spent the last few hours trying to talk to us, and it's hard to understand her at times, but often her expressions tell the story. A lot of I love you and I'm sorry, typical loving and caring Heather. She'll be reunited with the kids in a few minutes, and we'll all celebrate her homecoming. Thank you for your prayers. God has indeed touched our lives in Heather's body. Glory to our Lord. Yeah. Some of you, many of you have signed up to come to the Vows Conference that we're doing in July. Donnie is the guy who's doing the conference with me, and Heather will be with him. And I want to tell you something. Every time I look in her face, and by the way, you'd never know anything happened to her. She is fully recovered, healthy, well, doing fantastic. And every time I look into her face, you know what I think? My God is a restoring God. My God is a God who restores. I, I don't serve a God who fits in a box. If I did, it wouldn't be worthwhile. I serve a God who can work outside the box. I serve a God who walks the aisles of the intensive care unit at Wesley Hospital in St. Francis. I serve a God who is overseas with our military troops right now. And I serve a God who's with you when you go through pain and he can help you out. And don't underestimate the fact that he can restore you. Even if you're in pain right now, he can restore you. I know that. 
I know that. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray a restoration prayer in just a second. I know there are a lot of you in this room that are going through pain and going through difficult times. As a matter of fact, I'm just gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a second. And if you're going through extensive pain right now, I just want you to raise your hand right now. If you're going through pain and you want me to pray for you, I'm gonna pray a prayer of restoration. I see hands coming up all across this room. I'm gonna pray for you right now. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask for every person in this room that is going through pain, all the hands that are raised, Father, I pray for your restoration power in their life. I pray, Father, that in your time and in your way and in your technique, and Father, just not working inside the box, but working in your way, Father, that you would touch their hearts and that you would heal their pain and that you would give them understanding, and Father, the peace that the Bible says is better than knowing why. And in the meantime, Father, I pray that you would embrace them in your arms and help them to know that you are a loving God and that you can bless them even in the middle of pain. And Father, we leave it in your hands. You're a great big God, and we know you can do it. And we leave it with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for coming this week. Next week, we start Divine Whispers.